Well, good morning, Soma family. It's good to be back sharing with you today. Uh, we're going to start a new series today that'll last for the next few months. It's going to be on the book of 1 Peter. And I think this book is especially fitting in light of our current situation, really as the people of God living within a world that is experiencing really unprecedented restrictions, a lot of fear, suffering, death, and really I'd say this growing reality that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. The book of 1 Peter is written to God's people who were in similar times. Now, the original readers were not experiencing a pandemic like we are, but they were experiencing extreme persecution. And I think what we'll find here is that many things that Peter writes about will give you both uh, encouragement and instruction on how to live within a troubled world. And so I want to just begin this morning by reading a few of the verses for us today and we'll find that there's this, this rich greeting that Peter starts this book out. So we're going to read uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And so it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadonia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkle with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, I'm not sure about you, but the last time that I got a letter in the mail, um, I can't even remember. Uh, sure, I get some birthday cards and my mom sends me some Christmas cards here or there. My mom even sends me Valentine cards. Um, but as a culture, we really don't communicate this way with written letters anymore. Um, we send an email, we'll send a text, but when we receive it, we know exactly who it's from. Um, Jocelyn will often be playing on my phone uh, and she'll get off and she'll say, uh, Dad, so-and-so texted you or Casey texted you. And I'll be like, okay, I'll get to it in a minute. Uh, but the first century readers here receiving this letter was really uh, a big, big deal to them. Uh, this letter was most likely accompanied by a letter carrier, uh, not, like a, not like a mailman or mailwoman um, who just drops it off and leaves, but someone who would actually stay and someone who would read it uh, and carry it around to others and read it to them. And people would, um, would gather in homes as families, uh, just like we're doing right now, and listen to the words and discuss really what they heard and what was written down. And so this letter starts out uh, as Peter uh, identifying himself as the author. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, the apostle, the one who spoke at Pentecost, the, the now leader of the church, the one who, who Jesus calls the rock on who he's going to build his church, uh, not only gives authority to this letter, but the, but the recipients, I, I think, really would be able to identify with him as, a, as someone who, who not just writing from a place of authority, but someone who actually knows what it looks like and what it feels like to walk in the midst of hard and uncertain times. In, in the story, we find that, that Peter was, was a man who, who was led by Jesus, or led to Jesus by his brother Andrew. And Peter is Peter's a bit rough around the edges. Um, he was a fisherman. His two best friends were these guys called the, the Sons of Thunder. Um, so he's, he's kind of this gruff guy. He's, he's a fighter. He's a guy who cuts the ear off of a soldier. He's usually the first one to get into trouble by opening his mouth. He's, he's in many ways this, this larger-than-life character. Um, and that's kind of how often we think about Peter. But Peter was also a husband. 
Uh, when Jesus calls him to follow him, not only does he leave the stability of his job as a fisherman and, and goes away from the lake, he, he uproots his whole family and together they travel around with Jesus. It wasn't just Peter by himself. He travels with his entire family. We know that he travels with his mother-in-law as well. Um, and, and so Peter is a, is a guy who knows what it's like to live apart from his home. Uh, to leave all that he has known. Uh, and traveling with Jesus, he not only knows what it's like to experience suffering, um, he also knows what it's like to watch others suffer. He's a guy who knows what it's like to, to deny Jesus and, and when, when times get hard. Um, but he's also a guy who understands and, uh, what it's like to receive forgiveness and to be restored. And because of all these things, he's changed. He's changed because of it, and it makes him a, really the perfect candidate to speak into difficult, hard situations. Now, Peter's writers, uh, are, the people that Peter is writing to, uh, are followers of Jesus who've been scattered all around uh, several um, cities and throughout the region and different places and throughout the city. And most scholars believe that a good part of the scattering took place in the time of history where Nero was the emperor of Rome. And because Nero has this really incredible desire to build, he sets the city on fire. He destroys what's already existed so he can build it in a way that he wants. Now, the fire in Rome destroyed much of the city. It destroyed a good part of the city, uh, temples, destroyed businesses, it destroyed homes. Really, the culture of the Roman people was destroyed. Many people died, many people were displaced, and the people of Rome were really angry. They were hostile, and they wanted to overthrow Nero. So Nero uh, comes up with this idea to spread a rumor that the Christians were actually the ones who started the fire. And the people of Rome turned their hostility, hostility from Nero onto the Christians. And this intense um, persecution breaks out, not only really on the government level, but also just in the streets. And it wasn't a safe place to really be known that you loved and followed Jesus. And so, so Peter writes this letter to scatter believers, both Jews and Gentile Christians. And he uses a lot of language that the Israelites would have been familiar with. I remember Peter was a Jew, and so, so he uses a lot of, of that language that Israelites would have been familiar with. And so if you've ever been through the story of God with us as a church or or. Um, in your missional community, you'll probably recognize or see some echoes or, or re reminders back to the story as we go through this book. Um, so really following this, this initial introduction, Peter's desire is that the readers understand something about who they are. Peter knows firsthand that they need to be reminded about who they are and what God has done in order that they might get through the suffering and get through the persecution that's going on to them and around them. I think this is really a perfect place for us to start as well uh, during these times. I think the things that, that Peter says to these first century followers of Jesus are also true of believers in Jesus now. I know for all of us, life is not the same. Many things have changed over the past few weeks. And I'm going to say we'll continue to change in the weeks to come. And most likely this pandemic will have lasting effects emotionally, economically, and socially um, throughout your life and my lifetime. And, and just like most suffering, it catches people off guard. It surprises us when it happens. But it doesn't catch God off guard. It's why he uses the Holy Spirit um, to, um, through um, people like Peter to give us instructions on how to live in the midst of this broken world. 
And so as we read this book, we should be saying, how do we live now? How do we get ready to face uncertain sacrifice, uncertain suffering that's coming in the future? So later on in, in chapter 3, Peter is going to say, he's going to say, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. It's this idea that the way that you go through these hard times now should be, should be radically different from those who have no faith in God. Your life in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this turmoil, um, would be so different that, that people would come to you and ask you, how do you have joy and hope in the midst of this situation? And so as we read this book together, as we study together, we should be asking, how do we live this way? What, is, what does that look like? What does it look like to be a people who have faith in God, confident in God, in the midst of struggle? You see, in, in verse 1, Peter is taking great care um, by starting out, um, reminding them and reminding us who we are. The first thing he says to them is that they are elect or chosen exiles according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Father. Now we know that these first century readers or hearers uh, were exiles. They had, they had fled their homes for safety um, because of Nero. Um, they were in new surroundings and new cultures. They're in a new cities, really in new realities of life. For Gentile believers, this probably was a very new feeling for them. It was something they weren't familiar with. But Jewish believers, they were all too familiar with being exiles. For most of their history um, is spent as a people in exile, a people moving around, living in different countries, ruled by many different uh, rulers and kings and oppressors. And, and as, you, as you think about their history and as you look back at their history, um, one thing is always constant. In the midst of this struggle, there's a constant thread of God's faithfulness to his people. From the moment that God calls Abraham and chooses him to become a nation, this thread that extends back to the Garden of Eden, really, of God's promise to send a rescuer, continues to echo on and echo on despite the midst of all the turmoil, all the pain, all the struggle, all the exile. God's faithfulness is revealed over and over and over again. The difference is that these first readers were not awaiting the Messiah. They had already seen him. They had heard of him. They believed in Jesus, the long-awaited promised one. And so even in their current state of exile, they know firsthand the reality of God's faithfulness. You see, Peter calling them exiles here is a reminder to them that the kingdom that they're living in now is not actually their kingdom. That they're actually citizens of a new kingdom. That Nero is not their king. Jesus is the king of their kingdom. I want to say this is the same, this is the same is true for all believers who follow Jesus. We are exiles, aliens in this country, not green men from space, but people who are not citizens of the country that we live in. Prior to this pandemic, really one of the largest hot button issues was illegal aliens living in our country. What should we do with them? How should we treat them? How do we keep them in? How do we get them out? For, for many people, um, that, that, that's their that was their status, or still is their status, that are in our country now, they're, they're living in fear. They're hiding. They have, a, they have a very different culture. Yes, they experience the same things that we experience here in, in this city and in this country, 
but they think about it and approach these, these realities differently. And, and the truth is, even if they become legal immigrants and become citizens of this country, it's their second country. It's why we use names like African American or Asian American or Latin American. Yes, they live here, but their first cultural understanding comes from a different citizenship. And I want to remind you today that that is who you and I are if you're part of God's family. This world, this country, this city is not your home. You and I are aliens. First and foremost, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And just like these first readers, you know that reality. That even in the midst of the current struggles, you know the faithfulness of God. You have a peace that passes all understanding that regardless of what happens, we know that Jesus has rescued us and this will just be a minuscule blip compared to all eternity where we'll get to enjoy a new heaven and a new earth in the presence of God. That's good news. We get to be a part of a kingdom where there's no sickness, there's no death, there's no pain, there's no struggle, there's no fear, there's no worry, there's no hunger, there's no hiding behind masks. We get to live in a place where we get to live free from all shame, fully known and fully loved by God. You see, it's only with our true kingdom in mind will that allow us to endure in the midst of our current struggles. It's why Peter reminds them and reminds us of our exile, of our exile status. But just in case we don't get prideful about being part of a better kingdom, he also uses the word chosen. See, Peter is reminding us that just like Abraham was chosen to be uh, the family of God, you and I were chosen. Not based on, on how you lived or, or what you did or what you could do in the future. Out of no merit of your own or my own, God chose us. You see, that is pure grace. There's nothing that you and I can take credit for. And the good news is that even if you blow it after you were chosen, you can't be removed from the family. I'd say it's the same thing with a biological family. Me being an idiot or me disgracing my parents does not remove me becoming their son. It doesn't matter. They can try to disown me. They can say I'm not their son. But I am still their son regardless of that. I was born into their family, and nothing can change that, and it's not dependent on me. You see, God choosing you means it's not dependent on you. God is saying, it's my choosing, my faithfulness, my power, not yours. I'm the only one that's holding your salvation. I'm holding your citizenship card in my kingdom, if you want to think about it that way. That, that I'm the only one that can hold that card and not you or anyone else can take it out of my hand. It's really the, the, the doctrine of election. Now, this doctrine of election is, is both uh, taught and implied throughout Scripture. We see it in the stories of, of Cain and Abel, of Jacob and Esau, of Moses and David, and many others. But there's also specific passages where we see this taught. Uh, take a look at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians um, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He says this, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, 
with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Paul says, I know you were chosen because you believed. You see, there's an order in this passage. It's not you believe so God chose you. God is the prerequisite. He chose you, and because he chose you, you believed. God didn't respond to your belief. He wasn't sitting there and saying, oh, look, there's another one who believed in them. Let's pick them and put them on our team. No, it was the other way around. The only reason why I believed was because he chose me. I believed because he opened my eyes. What that means is that you and I, those of us that believed, did not do it by any merit of our own. We didn't believe because we were smart and figured it out. We didn't believe because we were well-behaved and our behavior led us to believing him. We only believe because God set us apart, because he chose us, because he set his affections on us. See, verse 2 also uses the word foreknowledge and uses that associated with him choosing us. Usually when we think about knowledge, we associate it with facts or information that we've obtained or that we've learned. The problem is that if we only use that definition of knowledge, it leads us to a people um, that taking uh, his, this word and say, well, he knew we would believe, so he chose us. Now, we know that not only goes against what we saw in the story and against these previous texts, but it's really a misunderstanding of that word within the scripture text. You see, if we look all throughout scripture, we'll see that this word to know is not just the idea of knowing facts or having some information in our head. Um, in fact, in Genesis 4, we see this word uh, used uh, for the very first time where it says, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's the idea of knowing as an intimate, uh, having an intimate acquaintance with to set one's affections upon, to call one your own. You see, knowing is much more than just some, some intellectual facts um, about what one has done. It's relational. So the word foreknowing is also the same Greek word that's often translated foreordained. And so this word here in verse 2 is not referring to the awareness of what's going to happen. It means that there was a predetermined relationship in the knowledge of God. That God brought sal the salvation relationship into existence ahead of time. Uh, we can think about it this way. That it's the same way that Christ was foreordained before the foundations of the world to be the sacrifice for sins. Believers, likewise, were foreordained to be saved, to be rescued. It was a predetermined plan. The question then becomes, what, for what purpose? Well, at the end of verse 2, um, it says two things, to be obedient to Jesus and to be sprinkled with his blood. And so we were chosen to be made obedient, uh, i.e. to walk in the ways of God, and, and, and also to be chosen to be sprinkled with his blood. So what does that mean? Well, if you go back to the story, you may remember the story of the children of Israel living in Egypt. Again, they were exiles living under the oppression of another uh, person, and God caused Moses to bring them out of the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh, who's in charge of Egypt, will not allow them to leave. And so God sends a series of plagues, each really aimed at uh, proving that the Egyptians' gods have no power. And each time God sends a plague, Pharaoh relents and says he, they can go, and then he reneges. So then God sends one final plague where he says, I will kill all the firstborn in every home. 
And the only way to be saved from this death is to take a perfect, blameless, spotless lamb and kill it and sprinkle its blood over the doorpost and then go inside and take shelter behind the door. And then God will transfer the death of those inside to the death as lamb, as payment. And so what Peter is saying here is that Jesus' blood has been sprinkled on your life. That you and I, that those of us that are part of God's family, now get to shelter behind the firstborn Son of God, whose blood was sprinkled in your place and my place. Romans 8 uh, says it this way. It says, um, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, do you see what this says? It says that because Jesus is sprinkled, because Jesus' blood is sprinkled on you and me, those he calls, we get to be brothers and sisters, part of the family of God. When God has chosen you and set his affections on you and, and making you his own, he is committed to making you everything he intended you to be so that he might be glorified. And so there's no need to fear. There's no need to worry in times of struggle or whatever you may be experiencing right now. There is nothing more powerful than God. Nothing. And God has set his affections on you. He loves you. He is not surprised, and he's not just responding. He has set it out as part of the plan so that you and I would know him more deeply than we already do. You and I are living uh, in, in this new reality. And I want to ask you a question. Are you living in this new reality right now in the middle of this pandemic? Are you living, are you living with the belief that God is in control? that he is good, that he has a good plan, even in the midst of your exile from your normal life. What, is, what God is saying through Peter to us is that I have a purpose for you and my plan is good and I'm going to bring something great in your exile. It is not a mistake. God did not forget about you. God has not run out of power. God loves you and you and I where are where we are because God has chosen you and put you there for a grand purpose. One of the other images that we're going to see in this letter, First Peter, is the image of being put in a, in a fiery furnace. Now, things never get put in a furnace just to stay the same. They go in a furnace to be refined, to be purified, to be made stronger. And I think this is exactly what Peter is saying here at the end of verse 2 where he says, sanctified, uh, saying in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. That, that all of this choosing of you, of him setting his affections on you, him putting you in this situation you and I are in right now, and him giving you his Spirit is so that you and I would be refined, so that pride, selfishness, whatever it may be, any unbelief in our lives, we would be set free from it. You see, God is not just calling you to himself. He is setting you apart, refining you, purifying you, making you holy, and leading you to obedience. 
really as we think about obedience, obedience is submitting to God and saying, God, I need your help. I need your power. I can't do this on my own. I know what it looks like when I have, um, have seen um, and have tried to do this and as my, on my own. I've seen the mess that all humans get into like myself when they try to get it on you, get to do it by themselves. God, I need your help. I can't push through this anymore. I can't get up without you today. I can't be my own provider. I can't heal myself. I can't provide for anyone else around me. I'm in desperate need of you. I need your power. I think we can often look at trials or, or things that we struggle with as, as bad things, but they can actually be great things if you get to experience the limit and the extent of your own power. You see, it's only then that you will realize that you are not powerful and that he is. And the good news is that God wants to give you his power. It's why verse 2 ends with grace and peace is yours in abundance. You see, God has been gracious to us. He's been gracious to us to show us our need of him. He's been gracious to give us his spirit, to give you his power, to walk through the things that you and I could not walk through right now. See, the good news is that, that Jesus suffered the wrath of God. It was poured out on him so that we might not suffer the wrath of God. He suffered like we will never suffer so that the Father could set his affections on you and me and refine you and sanctify you and set you apart and give you a new citizenship in the true kingdom for all eternity. That's good news. What grace and peace is yours in abundance, not just today, but every day. Let's live in light of that hope during this time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have been so gracious to us. Father, we thank you that you chose us, that you have placed us in your family. Father, we thank you that we are not alone. Father, please remind us that we are exiles in this world. Father, pray that we would live differently, that we would be people that have great hope and great joy and great strength in the midst of this pandemic and the midst of anything that's going to happen in the future. Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself in the midst of all that's going on in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' gracious name. Amen.